you have to cut back, you have to make sacrifices. Um, and I made a lot of sacrifices in not having those luxuries. I mean, I remember I have this paper mache uh, piggy, piggy bank I made with the kids I looked after in Paris. And I covered mine with Financial Times and I still have it. And I filled it up with all these like, uh, you know, scents. And I remember once having to crack into it to have enough, you know, to buy half a baguette. I was like so broke at the end of the month. Um, so it's like having that idea of like, you need to budget for something you can't have, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice things. And then also for me, the reason why I kept going was I had these little goals and these small goals get, um, gave me hope that I was getting closer to my bigger goal. So it could be like a small goal was for me, oh, I managed to sell out my cookery class, which meant I got more people on my newsletter and I sold five more cookbooks, you know. Um, so it was just these little things and I knew my bigger goal was, you know, to land something uh, like a big cookbook deal, you know. So that there were just these little steps to getting me closer to my bigger goal. And I, throughout my career, I've always, if I look back now, I've always started like had a, something big to work towards but then broke it down into smaller manageable uh, uh, like steps to get there. Welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast, a show about creative female entrepreneurs and the businesses they've built. I'm your host, the Lifestyle Edit founder, Naomi Ndudu, and each week I deep dive with a female founder on topics like business models and revenue streams, marketing and branding, building a team and scaling, and how they are managing to cultivate a life and business they love and all on their own terms. Our goal each week is to take you on a narrative journey of the opportunities and challenges in business right now and offer insights you can immediately apply in growing or starting your business. Rachel, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast. Thank you. I am so happy that we've got to do this. Um, Rachel and I connected, I think it was back in January, which already feels like a lifetime ago. Um, so this has been in the works for a really long time. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Um, so before we get started in all of the incredible things that you're currently working on, I'd love to head back and for you to kind of introduce yourself and kind of give a bit of an overview of your journey kind of up until this point. Okay. Wow. Ooh, where do I start? <laughs> um, so, uh, right. I shall start with... I went to art college. I went to Central St. Martins because that's quite key to know if you know where like my kind of high education, you kind of understand like my background, the way I think and approach things. So I went to art college. I did a degree at Central St. Martins in like media, so graphic design, uh, photography, web design. And then I ended up doing fashion PR marketing didn't like it, wasn't really my cup of tea. And I wanted to go into food. I really uh, liked uh, the idea of being a food stylist. I'd assisted on some shoots when I was at uni, but I couldn't get into that uh, field of work because you had to work for free and I needed to earn a living. I was living in London and London is not cheap. So that's how I ended up in fashion PR marketing. And so I did that for a couple of years and had, I had had enough and I felt, look, 
I want to get back into food. I spoke to some food writers and food stylists and they said, look, you need more practical experience. You should go to a culinary school. You should work in a restaurant. Working in a restaurant did not appeal to me at all. I'd been a waitress many years and like being in the kitchen, no thank you. So I was like, right, why don't I go to culinary school? Looked at my options, uh, looked at the options in London and I felt like doing a pastry course would be more my thing. Looked at Vienna because Vienna is known for pastry and then decided on Paris I kind of felt like, okay, I'll get two for one. If I go to Paris, I can learn French and I can do this course. Um, the course wasn't cheap. So I actually, um, I also worked a full-time PR job and I got uh, like, did loads of babysitting on the side and uh, like saved up that way. A lot of people think, you know, uh, I just went off and had my parents pay for it. I'm like, no, I earned it myself. <laughs> Um, and then before I went to Paris, I like, I only have so much money for the course. I decided that I, I need to find a way of paying my way, like having a roof over my head. So I got a job as an au pair in Paris, which would fit around my studies. So that way I had somewhere to stay. I had like food that was all kind of covered and a bit of pocket money. Um, and so I, I got on the Eurostar with a huge suitcase and a yoga mat. Um, And I arrived the day they had a techno parade, (laughs) (laughs) which is a nightmare because you can't get a taxi. And the family picked me up and this eight-year-old girl said to me, none of our au pairs has ever arrived with a bigger suitcase than yours. What do you have That is so funny. So, yeah. um, And that's how my Paris journey began. Um, So you studied at Le Cordon Bleu. Mm. obviously you kind of gravitated toward pastry while you were studying did you have a vision of what life was going to look like after you finished or were you just kind of like I'm going to really be present in this moment and I'll figure that out later oh no definitely not present (laughs) um I was like right um I already thought I'll go back to London I'll get a job as a food stylist you know, I'll do it that way. And I finished my course and I was starting to love Paris. Yeah. In the beginning, I didn't really like Paris. It was very, I didn't speak French. Like my French was like, bonjour, comment allez-vous, je m'appelle Rachel. <laughs> you know, like really cheesy, uh, like English style French. Um, so it took me a while to integrate into like making friends and learning the language. But I started to feel at home. I was like, you know, Paris is really cool. I was meeting people. I was going out. I was like partying like crazy. This was like, actually in terms of like in comparison to uni, uni, I was such a good girl. I was so hard work. Whereas in Paris, I was like, right, I'll do my pastry course, but I want to live life. I want to be going out. I was like, you know, I, it's really cheesy. I belong to this like group of friends and we would go to this hip hop club and we would battle it out. I love it. You know, I had like my outfits, we'd dress up, you know, I'm really bad at like break dancing and locking and popping, but I tried, you know, <laughs> over it. Um, and I just like, you know what, I'm going to stay in Paris a bit longer. I'm going to try and improve my French. I thought I'll stay another year and try and make something happen with the food there. And in my second year in Paris was like, I hit so many roadblocks, like, I like the family wanted me to move out. So I had to find somewhere to live, but also I had to find another way, another job. And like 
if you're a foreigner in uh, France, you don't speak French very well, um, like applying for a job is super hard because the way the French system works is you know somebody who knows somebody and that's how they get your foot in the door. And I got a job in a department store in Paris selling perfume because the mum of the family I used to au pair for, she got me that job. Wow. I wouldn't have been able to get that job. I also like taught English. I worked in a gallery. Um, uh, and my big break happened was when the mum, I'd like the family I'd worked for, the mum had a friend who was opening a, a culinary bookstore. And she said, you've got to meet my friend. She's looking for somebody to help her out. Um, and I met this lady. I started working in the culinary bookstore. And this was like a dream. You know, I was working in a, a bookstore just full of cookbooks and I had, a, there was a little tea room and I would bake cakes and I said to the owners like, oh, I know we don't have a space to do a cookery class, but could I like do a, a class where people don't need a kitchen and we could decorate cupcakes? So this was in 2008, I don't know, a long time ago. <laughs> I think, um, and this was before the cupcake craze. And I, I did these classes called Pimp My Cupcake. So I was telling, teaching French people how to decorate a cupcake. And they were a big hit, you know. And I started to meet food writers. And I just basically went up to every food writer, me, saying, oh, I love your work. Do you need some help? Here's my card. If you need somebody to test recipes or just like clean the dishes or anything, just give me an email and I started to meet people and then this American food writer who had a juice bar he um, said oh I need somebody to test some bagel recipes so I worked on his cookbook and from working on his cookbook I got a two book deal with a French publisher so that's how I wrote two cookbooks in French before the little Paris kitchen which was like my you know, my big break. But at the same time, I was also doing like catering. I did pop-up events. So I did like, I had a friend who moved to Australia and she was living in Sydney. And I said to her, look, I want to do a pop-up restaurant in your front room. Let's do one together. So we did a pop-up restaurant. This was 2010. Wow. So this is well before like pop-ups were a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. So did one in Sydney, did one in Melbourne. She moved to Buenos Aires, did one in Buenos Aires, did one in Berlin, Paris, London. I just tried things out. I didn't make any money, but, you know, like the pop-up events, we would, you know, do the PR for, we'd do the creative work, kind of come up with the recipes, entertain. You know, you do the whole thing from, you know, creating the event, promoting it, to doing it. So it was a great learning experience in terms of, getting your message out there. And this was before social media. This was before, okay, you had Facebook. This was like kind of my space was kind of going out and Facebook was coming in. So Instagram didn't even exist back then. So the way we got the news out was through a newsletter. And you think nowadays everybody's returning to newsletters. So it's funny how we've come full circle. Totally, totally. And I guess it must have been such an exciting time. You'd love food, you know, even before you started working in fashion. So you were able to now kind of really dive into that work. But as you said, you were not making money at that point. How were you 
managing to kind of push through and commit to it, I guess, um, no, without there being a kind of certainty that there would be kind of that, that <laughs> grass is greener, you know, mm. on the other side, that kind of um, how, because I think there'll be lots of people listening who have passion projects, whether it's, you know, they want to be a writer, they want to be an artist, um, but there's can be this tension sometimes when you throw yourself into the thing that you love and then you now rep- depend on it to, to put a roof on your head. How are you kind of managing that so that you are continuing to love um, to love what you are doing? Yeah, so for a long time, I continued to have that job uh, working in a department store as a perfume girl and teaching English and like having that money. So I knew my rent would be covered, but I did not have the luxury of going on holiday. For years, I didn't go on holiday. You know, I didn't have the luxury of shopping nice clothes. I'd go to, like people think I have this 50s look. The reason why I have this vintage look was because I went to the secondhand shops and the cheap dresses were the ones which were colorful and patterned, you know, and I liked them and they were what I could afford. So... Um, I really, you have to budget, you know, you have to think, all right, I can't go and have that, go out with my friends and have a slap up meal. And I can't, you know, um, go to the cinema or whatever. I really, you have to cut back. You have to make sacrifices. Um, and I made a lot of sacrifices in not having those luxuries. I mean, I remember I have this paper mache uh, piggy, piggy bank I made with the kids I looked after in Paris and I covered mine with financial times and I still have it. And I filled it up with all these like, uh, you know, cents. And I remember once having to crack into it to have enough, you know, to buy half a baguette. I was like so broke at the end of the month. Um, so it's like having that idea of like, you need to budget for something you can't have, you know, you're going to have to sacrifice things. And then also, for me, the reason why I kept going was I had these little goals and these small goals get, um, gave me hope that I was getting closer to my bigger goal. So it could be like a small goal was for me, oh, I managed to sell out my cookery class, which meant I got more people on my newsletter and I sold five more cookbooks, you know. Um, so it was just these little things and I knew my bigger goal was you know, to land something uh, like a big cookbook deal, you know, so that there were just these little steps to getting me closer to my bigger goal. And throughout my career, I've always, if I look back now, I've always started, like had something big to work towards, but then broke it down into smaller manageable uh, uh, like steps to get there. Because I think if you want to get to something, you need to start somewhere. You need to be in motion. If you're not in motion, you're not going to get there. So it's all about just keep on going. It's the marathon. It's not a sprint. It's the people who keep on going. It's the people who keep on turning up every day. The consistency and the persistence pays off. So by the time I pitched the Little Paris Kitchen, so the way I pitched the Little Paris Kitchen cookbook was I just emailed 10 publishers in the UK I really liked. I had, like, I put this PDF together of who I am, 
So I'd previously done lots of events around the world. I'd gained a little press from that. Um, I'd done two cookbooks in Paris. I, you know, I did little like pages of from those cookbooks I did in France. And so I, I had something to bring to these big publishers in the UK. So I wasn't a no one, you know, there was something to me. I had some, you know, experience to show them. Um, and to prove that I can do what I'm like, what, what I'm trying to sell them. So I think that helped too. So true. I almost want to go back to what you were saying about budgeting. Cause I think that was such an important point. And I think I've mentioned this on the show. It's one of my favorite quotes from Gloria Steinem. And she basically says, you can tell how old this quote is that if she was knocked by a car, she'd want to, she'd want her bank, her checkbook to reflect her values. Like, does your checkbook reflect your values? Mm. And I see so many people, especially in the entrepreneurship space, are like, I want to start my business. I want to do this, but I don't have the resource. I don't have this. And then, you know, you look on Instagram and they've just gone on a luxury holiday to Dubai. And it's like, well, (laughs) priorities, right? Yeah. I I mean, yeah, it's the most important. What is the most important thing? And even sometimes when I started investing in my personal development and I hired my first coach, oh my God, did it feel like a stretch, but I needed that investment in order for me to show up. And because I really wanted it, I found the resources. Um, so I think that was a really important point for anyone that's listening. Like if you really want to, to start that go freelance or you want to um, start your own business, are you really prioritizing kind of where you're allocating your resources? That's a very good point. It's very, yeah. And I love how you broke that down because when I'm speaking to people who have had ideas for businesses for a long time, but haven't taken the leap, the reason always is, is that, oh my God, it just feels so insurmountable because they're looking at that ultimate goal rather than breaking it down. So I love that. And I love that you just were kind of very out there and forthright and you kind of pitched to those editors. Cause I think that so much of being an entrepreneur is about daring to put yourself out there and daring to have that ask. So do you have any advice for anyone listening who's struggling with that and who's kind of riddle with that fear of rejection or second guessing that they have anything valuable to offer some of these kind of big impressive names okay first off you gotta uh, like accept you're going to be rejected it's just the way it is you, you like I have had so many I constantly deal with rejection even now people think oh look she's super successful every day you know I like the last I don't know year or so it's been a real struggle business-wise I work on like deals with whatever I'm like contracts and stuff like that I can work for them on like six months and it falls through so if you are in the business of running like following your passion or being an entrepreneur or anything where you're not having a nine to five and on somebody's payroll you will deal with rejection it's the point blank but the way you handle it is what you can control So the fact that if you just accept there is going to be rejection, I think that makes it easier. So, and there's nothing wrong with uh, rejection. It means, firstly, you have taken the courage to take that risk and, and approach somebody. So that you can like pat yourself on the back for, because a lot of people don't do that. 
It's so true. And I'm a firm believer in that fail often, fail fast. The most successful Mm. people do. And it's the same thing with rejection. The more you get comfortable with outreach, sometimes I'll even forget that I've (laughs) reached out to someone. It's like, oh, yay. And, you know, when they get back to you, you have to completely uh, lose that, uh, lose that, disengage is the word. Mm. Yeah, disengage is the word and make it a habit. It's like a muscle like anything else. Okay, so you've now got this this book deal with Penguin. Mm. Um, Why books and what impact has writing books had on your career because you know your your new book is coming out this summer this is now what six books in yeah so book number six um so for me like I went to art college and at St Martin's it's a particular way of teaching you know that they're not really interested in the craftsmanship and such it's more interesting creating ideas and generating ideas they always believe you can hire somebody to do what you need them to do and coming up with ideas the bit which is hardest so I always feel like for me I don't care what I'm doing as long as I can be creative so the like writing cookbooks I enjoy because I can be creative in so many ways. Firstly, from researching, developing the recipes, it's really hands-on. Then you're writing, you know, the way you write, you're creative with the writing. Then actually working with a team like the photographer, the food stylist, the prop stylist. Although when I started off, it was just me and a photographer. You know, working with a creative team to create the image. Then you work with a graphic designer, an art director to create the, like, the, you know, the font, the way the page is laid out the paper and then finally you're working with the PR team you know to promote the book how can you be creative in getting your book out there and that's what I'm working on right now you know I'm in pre-promo mode I'm like okay who can I reach out to you know I am still you know I've got over 200,000 people who follow me on Instagram but I still reach out to Instagrammers and YouTubers who are in the 10,000 region say look I really love your feed can I do something with you because I believe they could help me in some way in promoting my cookbook and they might want to meet me I mean I don't know. Maybe they won't want to meet me, but I, it's like there's nothing to lose. You're totally. like this saying that you've got to be in it to win it. Totally. So, of course, you're getting all of your creative juices flowing when you're creating these cookbooks, but how do they fit into your kind of broader business plan? So, I mean, I first started off like, oh, I just want to write cookbooks. That's my dream, you know? Um, and then afterwards, like, especially writing um, The Little Paris Kitchen, I did, you know, I had this um, pop-up restaurant going on at the same time, a table for two with the idea it would, like, save, um, like, money in terms of and save food wastage and I could meet people and also generate a little bit of PR interest in yeah. people, like, uh, hearing about, me cooking in Paris. So I thought that would make a good TV idea. So I literally, I just went to my TV agent or like my literary agent who had, they had a TV department and said, look, I think this cookbook would make a good TV idea. Uh, can you set up some meetings with production companies with me? And I literally went around production companies saying, hi, my name's Rachel. This is the cookbook I'm writing. I think it would make a good TV show. And 
I found a production company who understood what I wanted, what my vision was, and that, you know, you didn't need to change me because I think it's important that you, when you are pitching your idea to people, uh, which requires you working with other people, that you stay true to yourself, be authentic. And that's something my mum sat me down and and told me, you know, um, it was really important. Um, And that is stayed with me throughout like what I've done it's like I've always stuck to what I believe is is right for me I know I didn't know this I I loved reading more about you before just in preparation for this conversation um that you said to that first production company that you're working with like this is a partnership you made it very clear that you wanted it to be female friendly and not that kind of over-sexualized image that was emerging at the time. And I I loved that so much because I think very often, especially when we're at the start of our entrepreneurial journey, we're almost we're always so grateful. And I'm not saying don't be grateful, but it's a partnership. It's a value exchange. They're giving value. You're also providing value. It's okay to say, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. So I love that you were so forthright in the beginning about that that's amazing I always think if you're working with somebody else and this is where I think contracts are super important be clear with what you expect from them and what you are willing to offer so if they understand exactly what you are willing to offer then they won't be disappointed or upset or whatever when you say I'm not going to do that because you've made it very clear at the beginning like these are my boundaries this is what I'm what I want to do I think it's more important for tv um because it's so much based on the visual side of things and also how you feel comfortable in front of the camera um so I do like if anybody's going into like tv or doing your own youtube channel or whatever I guess if you're doing your own channels it's easier you can control it but working with another uh, team or brand or whatever be clear with what you want and I I think I watch a lot of influencers work with brands and I I feel for the PR company and I feel for the influencer because like often the PR companies don't know what they're doing and often the, P- the influencers have not worked with a PR company on that capacity. So it doesn't always end up good, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you obviously got that first show. How then, I'd love to learn more about how the TV and the books, how does that kind of how have you been able to leverage that and how does that fit into the bigger picture of brand Rachel Crew? Okay, so in the food world, the ultimate grail or the food cookbook world, the ultimate grail is to have a cookbook be launched at the same time as a TV show because that is like having a weekly advert for your cookbook, especially if you have prime time. So prime time is like between seven and nine o'clock, Monday to Friday on like a a terrestrial channel, like BBC One, Two, uh, ITV, Channel Four, and potentially Channel Five. So um, that is pretty much a way of like getting, uh, making sure you have a bestseller or really good selling cookbook. So having the Little Paris Kitchen air on BBC Two on a Monday night at eight o'clock, I believe, if I remember correctly, was it like 
pushed my career up into somewhere I'd never be without it. Um, so it, it really changes things. And people kind of um, think, you know, TV is not as powerful as it was. And, okay, there are different avenues you can go now with uh, YouTube and Instagram and all the social media platforms. But I must say TV is still a very strong medium. Uh, and how does it fit in? Like it basically gave me financial freedom and financial independence is something that is invaluable. Like a, you can pay your bills. Like, so it meant that I like, I bought a mini washing machine with my first advance. So I wouldn't have to go <laughs> to the laundrette anymore. That was, that was a life changer, you know? <laughs> like not lugging your laundry up and down um, and not having to worry about, can I pay my rent this month? Yeah. You know? Um, and then like it, a few years later on through saving and writing more cookbooks and doing more TV shows and starting to do endorsement deals, it meant that I had enough money to buy my own property in London. Um, and I, I never, oh, and also pay off my student loan. Like when you go to university, you kind of, you never think you'll be able to pay it off, you know, and that I must say, I'm hugely proud that I was able to pay off my student loan and buy a property on my own through basically hard work, perseverance. Um, and if anybody ever says to me, oh, it's because you were lucky. I just want to, I, I just, I am so angry. I hate that. I am so angry that it's nothing to do with luck. It has to do with the fact that I turned up every day. I worked day and night. I knocked on those doors. I took that risk to make uh, to make it happen. And I, and it's not because I'm lucky. I am very fortunate. I, I think that's a better word. I'm fortunate that I am in this position, but it's because I took that risk and and I. And I worked hard. And, um, you know, as the yeah. old adage goes, the harder you work, the luckier you become, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so you were entering the TV space, the, the cookbook space. Now we have lots of women. It wasn't the case like that when you were starting. How would you say that the space has evolved? Because I remember you saying that it once felt like an old boys club. You know what? It's funny. It... <laughs> Sometimes it still feels like that. Really? <laughs> yeah, you sit in meetings, you know, like, or like I look at TV shows sometimes and I'm like, where's the diversity? You know, uh, when my fifth cookbook came out, I had an interview in the Radio Times and I said, like, there is uh, TV in the UK is not diverse, it's lacking in female talent, and there's so many amazing women out there. Um, and it's not just like women, there's also like, the, where's all the people from all different backgrounds? You know, it's just not showing up on our screens. Um, and uh, it, it's frustrating. I mean, it's getting better, but I, th I still think it could be better. I, uh, yeah, I mean, you just have to you just have to go in that meeting and like, right, it is what it is. And you have to stand your ground and 
not but let it intimidate you. But it's tough because you see it in many industries. Um, but I have a friend that works in, in TV and she wanted to get into documentaries. And even then it was the kind of resounding response was like, almost like we've already done our female quota. Like we work yeah. with that one female yeah. until something happens with her. Like we're not going to have anybody else. It literally needs to be that you would have to replace her because there's no yeah. other female slots. Yeah. What have been some of the opportunities and challenges that have come now that we've seen that shift, you know, that there is, mm-hmm. it seems like there are only a few slots and I can imagine that that yes. creates a sense of competition. Yeah, so there are only a few slots and it's often about, okay, we have an old person, a fat person, a white person, a young person, uh, like somebody from African background, somebody from Asian background. You know, it's all about ticking the boxes a little bit. Um, But what I say is, because I still struggle with like getting TV shows commissioned. You know, I am still out pitching there. You know, I've been pitching for the last couple of years, um, TV ideas, uh, and they don't get commissioned. And then I'm like, okay, you you give it as good as it as you get, you know. And then you're like, okay, if I can't work it from this angle, maybe I use another medium if I'm that passionate about it, you know. And that's what I love about today is there are opportunities beyond TV. Uh, And you can see that from all these amazing vloggers who've just taken it into their own hands and say, look, I'm going to learn how to edit, shoot, and create my own content Um, and approach it from that way. It's it's sad that TV is like that sometimes, but you can't, if you've got a message or like a creative passion in you, you want to get out, you, you can't rely on somebody controlling it all. A quick break from today's show to talk to you all about our sponsor, Breather. Breather offer dedicated workspace in great locations in cities like London, LA, New York, San Francisco, Toronto, all without the big monthly price tag. So think beautiful spaces minus membership fees or commitment. All you need to do is pay by the hour or by the day and reschedule or cancel for free for up to two hours before your reservation. For more information, just head to breather.com. Completely. So how have you been able to take that control back? So you've been you've been pitching, um, but of course you're at the behest of somebody else. And I know that you were saying that before TV really was the driving driver for kind of pushing book sales. Mm. How have you navigated that? What are you using as an alternative these days? So um obviously, like it is still a big driver, but so I'm thinking about my cookbook right now, The Little Swedish Kitchen. I've got that coming out 26th of July. I haven't got a TV show with it. I've been pitching for a TV show, but it's not happening quite yet. I'm still working on that. Um, so I know, right, I can't control the traditional media, you know, but what can I control? Okay, I have my own social media platforms. So I've basically, I've uh, film some videos I can push out on my YouTube channel. I'm creating content like through my newsletter. So I've always believed strongly about using tools you can control. Um, so I, I'm working hard on that and then also reaching out to other people who have platforms. Maybe we can collaborate, you know, uh, we can do something together. So I think um, looking at things from a different angle. So, okay, TV's not going to work, but what can I make work? You know, don't let the thing 
that doesn't work get you down you know focus exactly asking yourself empowering questions right yes I think people put too much energy into the things which don't work and you waste that energy which you could put into think making things happen you know so I think turn it around spin it on its head Completely. And that's why I love that you've been so collaborative, especially in the influencer space, because I saw it when I was still in my old life in print, that there was this tension, you know, the old guard, the print journalists, and then these influencers who they kind of very much felt like were these upstarts that were coming up. You've kind of taken the opposite approach to be like, they're doing something really interesting. How can I actually learn from them? How can they learn from me? How can there be a value exchange? rather than this kind of us versus them. How can we learn from one another and, you know, create more dynamic content in the food space? Yeah, and look, I started blogging back in 2006. So if you go on my website and you go right, right, right to the very first post, you could see like a picture of like this awful cake I took. (laughs) I I made it Le Cordon Bleu. It's like, yeah, I tried to make this cake, but I did it wrong. It's still tasty. It was like two sentences and a photo. So I've always embraced like tools you can do yourself. I coded my first website. I got a book, uh, HTML for dummies, because I couldn't afford to hire somebody to do my own website. I'm like, there is, there's so many tools out there to make it happen on your terms. And obviously it's going to be hard graft and it's going to be hard work, but if you really want to do it, you can. Um, yeah, so I'm true. a true believer in that. And There'll be lots of people listening who run seasonal businesses. So it's either around launches um, or kind of, yeah, just just seasonal. There are times in the year when they're really busy and times when they're not. And a lot of your work is geared around your cookbooks. How are you, do you have any advice about managing cash flow? So we're not going through that kind of feast and famine. How are you making sure that you're kind of regulating things between your launches so that you're not under pressure to, con- to continually kind of be pumping out material? Yeah. Now, ha this is a good question. I, like the last couple of years or the last 2017, I did a really, like, I'm going to be quite honest. I managed my finances really badly for a couple of years, like 2016, 2017, because I had this passion project and I just pumped in all my money into that. But previously, and now I'm much better at like managing my finances. (laughs) And I think it's firstly, you know, I, I hire, I have a really good accountant that helps. I think my dad says, pay peanuts, get monkeys. So some things are worth investing in, <laughs> you know? Um, and like getting in problems with the HMRC, like the tax office and stuff like is so much stress, mm-hmm. you know? So I think as if you can afford it or even afford like getting some consulting, like an hour with an accountant so you can like map out your finance, like what are you liable to pay for taxes this year? So you know roughly, okay, in July, I'm going to have to pay this amount. So you know roughly, I'm going to have these tax bills coming in. So you have your big expenses. It's about sitting down, doing an Excel spreadsheet and looking at what you're spending. It's boring. It's so unglamorous, but it has to be done. <laughs> like, you know, and you're like, okay, I get, 
a big advance, but then I've got to make it stretch for how many years? You know, I only, I tend to write a cookbook every two years, you know, so I have to make it stretch for those couple of years. So I have to think like, okay, this is what I know is going to come in. Then I'm going to have extras from royalties from previous books, but I can't guarantee all the other things are like bonuses. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's sitting down and doing the numbers. Um, and that's why even back when I was starting off, what I did have is like, I always had like my base income, like my perfume job covered all my costs. So it's a bit like my cookbooks cover all my costs, you know? Um, and then anything extra was like, I can invest, I can yes. spend on a nice holiday or I can, you know, buy something or whatever, you know? So I think it's like, get your costs covered and the rest of it, you can, yeah, you can see how do I want to spend it? You know, you have a little bit of freedom with that, have a bit of fun, you know, or put it aside to a rainy day. And I guess also it makes, it enables you to keep brand Rachel Q pure because there was an interesting thing that came up in our conversation with Ella Mills from Deliciously Ella. And she was like, yes, there's been opportunities that have come up um, you know, where they kind of tapping into her as an influencer. And while it would have been very tempting, she just had to be like, no, because, you know, her brand is not about, you know, where she goes on holiday, what she's, what clothes she's got. It's about, you know, empowering people with food and giving them access to incredible, um, incredible food. So by making sure that now she has that product line and diversifying her revenue stream, it means that she's never had to compromise just to keep the lights on. Yeah, it, that is that is a good way of like making sure you don't have to compromise. Um, it's not easy. I mean, the temptations out there. It's um, and I understand. I like you know what when I see an influencer like doing something which is not really in tune, I'm like, you know what? Ha- Fair enough. You know, yeah. people. I think there's this expectation which also drives me up of free content. Um, like people, like I did a YouTube channel, uh, a couple of years ago where I would have a video go out every week and wow. I fronted a, the cost myself. I paid for the videographer. I paid, like, obviously I spent my time, you know, developing the recipes, spent my time filming the recipes, putting the content out and people are like, why is there not new content? And I'm like, because I don't have the budget to pay somebody and I don't have the time to create that content. Also, YouTube, make a killing. I'm I'm like YouTube's hamster, you know? Everybody has to remember. Actually, I think Seth Godin said it. Like, social media, I'm kind of quoting really roughly, but it's like, you are a social media's hamster. You are Mark Zuckerberg's hamster in that wheel going round and round using his platform or Instagram or whatever. People have to remember that, you know, like you said, when you were talking about newsletters, don't build your foundation on somebody else's ground. Yeah. Amen. So, so true. Um, and that's why I really loved what you've done with Collect. Um, it's your platform. You share lots of incredible stories with like-minded women, recipes, the whole kind of thing. It's almost like your editorial world. Why did you decide to create that on top of everything else that you're doing? Because I'm a crazy lady. 
I know sometimes I'm like, Naomi, why do you make your life so hard? <laughs> yes, I get it. So can you share a little All bit? Right. Okay. Love. So for many years, like I've been writing cookbooks, like it was, you know, and I was feeling like I have more to say, you know, I want to, I want to connect with people. I want to have a platform to do something beyond food. And I wanted to develop a second brand, which was partly me, but also where I could step behind the camera. Um, and so I thought, right, I'm going to launch this platform, which is a community where it's about what I'm passionate about, like finding inspiration in unlikely places, like just anything and everywhere. It, it had to go beyond like my website. Um, and I created this platform. I built up this really fantastic team of people very quickly, um, of five people like working on editorial, creating content and stuff like that. And I had this business model and then I got pregnant and I was running like doing TV shows and I moved to Sweden. And, and then I just had so much on and it, I like, I'm going to be very honest. It, I struggled. I completely struggled. I took on too much and it kind of, it like I struggled hugely and I, and it fell apart a little bit last year. Well, I fell apart a little bit last year and I realized, you know what? I love this platform, but I don't love the stress it, it brings to my life. So, uh, after like, a lot of soul searching last year, I decided I'm going to simplify it, you know, and the five people left. <laughs> I had to do a lot of painful things. It's not easy to let people go. I must say I struggle really hard with that. Um, and I decided to run it a lot simpler. Um, I mean, before that, before the people left, I did decide to renovate um, a space I bought in London and completely renovate it and create it into this beautiful studio. And we did that in like, I set up brand partnerships to make that happen. Um, but now I'm running that platform a lot simpler with like one freelancer who helps me out a little bit. And you know what? It's, it's such a relief. You know, I had these big ambitions, but I evaluated it afterwards that those big ambitions are not right in my life. So um, it's very humbling. You know what? I think people have to be ready. You can be super successful, but around that corner, there might be a big crash and you are going to be humbled. So, yeah that will happen. <laughs> and it's, and that's why I loved when we had this conversation earlier on in the year, it's our businesses are going to evolve and they should evolve to reflect where we are right now, mm. where you were when you first started your business, where you are right now is completely different and it's okay to make those pivots. I think we get so afraid that, oh my God, we put this thing out there in the world. Everybody knows that I've got this team and I've got this big infrastructure so, mm. you know, I can't pull away. And it's like, first of all, no one really cares in the grand scheme. Yes. No oh one cares. <laughs> it's crazy. Our ego, like no one cares. And like, what? <laughs> our businesses are supposed to serve the life we want to lead. Like the moment you start getting those kind of palpitations over your own frigging business, 
something is seriously mm. wrong. But yeah. it, I think very often it's about us giving ourselves permission to be like, no, nah, actually this isn't serving me anymore. Yes, I agree. I agree. So how are you managing that? How have you found that transition now that things are more streamlined? I So I've been doing a lot of soul searching recently or just like evaluating what do I want what do I want more of in my life and what's right for me and how do I want to move things on? Because um, I think it's really important to take that time because often you're just like it, like you're just, just doing the work. You're just going through your list, ticking things off, like got to get things done, do, 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 do. And you don't take time to think, where am I going with this or what's the bigger picture? And I've been doing that a lot and I realized I need to streamline even more. Like I, I... I want more time for me, like more time just to enjoy life and be in the present. I don't know. So I have a young family and for me, I feel like time slipping away with my family is important to me now. Things that priorities have changed. And like you said, you want your business to be serving you and not vice versa. Um, And I, I made this like, like my motto for 2018 was work less, earn more. Right now I'm working more, earning less. So <laughs> I'm not doing so well, but I'm like, I, I've decided, you know what? Like stop pushing the ball, the boulder up the hill. Push yes. it down the hill. Yes. So I'm looking at my business and thinking, what are the easy things I can do what are the things which I can do which will fit in my life which will allow me to do the things I want to do and really taking the time to do that um because you can't do you can't I don't think you can analyze what you're doing in your life if you're rushing around you actually have to sit down and take that time and when you do that when you have taken the time, things it makes things so much easier. So you know, like, right, where do I need to be going? Who do I need to be approaching? What direction? You can be a lot more targeted and really channel your energy into the area you need to be doing because it's so easy to get, to divulge, not divulge, diverse, I don't know, like thinking the right, you just spread yourself too thinly. Like I'm thinking right now, I know I should be on like Instagram and social media a lot more, but you know what? I'm spending my time on my newsletter because with the whole GDPR thing, I had this whole cleanup. I was listening to that podcast you did. It was so good. I was telling all my friends, you've got to listen to this podcast. It was so useful. It was so amazing. Um, and I was like, right, I'm cleaning up my list. Um, I got rid of so many subscribers, which is great because I don't pay for them anymore. But I was like, I want to add value to these people who open my newsletter. And so I have budgeted, like yesterday, I hired a photographer and a stylist to help shoot recipes. And I'm making a little e-cookbook people can get when they sign up to my newsletter you know they're going to be free recipes people like get it's going to be beautifully shot you know um and I want to invest my time into the newsletter because I don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg's hamster anymore 
you know, <laughs> just like, I'm like, I want to be, I want to be in control of like what I put out there. And that's what I love about newsletters. I know those people are opening my newsletter. Exactly. Like, and that's the funny thing is, it's the thing that I talk to people about the most. And it's the area that people get the most anxiety. Oh my God. You know, I don't have as much followers as I want. Or, oh, I want that to have that swipe up function. Oh, you know, it's, you know, it's crazy. And it, all of these things, swipe up functions, is it's just a way to keep us even more engaged. And, and it's on this rabbit, on this hamster wheel of more, more, more. And my question is always, how are you loving up on the people that you already have? Yes. How are you adding value to them? Your email list, people have given you their email. It's so much more of a commitment to give your your email than it is to just follow someone on Instagram. Okay, there's people on your list. How are you loving up on them? When was the last time you messaged them? So we can be so trapped in this more, 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 more subscribers, more followers, more clients, more customers. How are we taking care of the people that we currently have? I know it's so valuable. Like I know from my NAS newsletter, 60% was opened. How many people see my Instagram post? Exactly. I don't know. It's like probably, yeah, such a fraction of the 200 and something thousand who follow me, you know? So I think it, there's a real value in, in investing in people who actually want to listen to you. I mean, preach to the converted <laughs> makes so much easier. So yeah. You've had some pretty powerful pivots in your, in your career. How have you been able to kind of tap into your intuition or kind of learn to follow it um what's kind of been your process in in getting to that space because it feels like just listening to you you've always had that you know intuitively whether that meant kind of pitching to those people and really kind of putting yourself out there to what we've just been talking about you know deciding actually I want to slow down and I want to streamline things how have you I'd love to just explore a little bit more with you about that kind of tapping into your intuition and how you do that, how you create the white space um, to kind of get these kind of guidance. Okay, so I think there's something to be said about listening to your gut. But in order to listen to your gut, you have to take the time to listen to it. You know, you have to, like I... I've been meditating on and off the last couple of years and I was going through this like recently through this moment where I had to make an important business decision and I couldn't decide what would be the right thing to do. And I remember just taking 10 minutes to sit in the park like a loser <laughs> and, to, and just sit and think about it and, and not have the humdrum of everyday life and just think, right, what feels right for me? What is my gut telling me? You know, and often I'd say more or less in my whole career so far, it's the gut, which is like giving me the right direction, you know, it, it, but you, because you know, you're, everybody knows you knows themselves. I think, you know, you, especially, I think I'm now in my mid thirties, I kind of know how, what I feel comfortable with, what feels right for me when I'm getting too stressed, when it's too much. So um, listening to your gut helps. But then I also do the thing where 
I sit down and write a list, pros and cons. Okay, this person, da-da-da, this brand, da-da-da, you know, and you list it all and you can be quite pragmatic about it. That helps too. Um, So it's a mix of like spending time to listen to your gut, but also listing it all like, and then like having the bigger pictures, like you look at like, okay, my big goal this year is to earn more work less. So I look at jobs coming through. I have offers like, okay, we require you to do X, Y, Z. It will pay you X, Y, Z. And I look at how much work versus how much pay. Does that add up? No, it's too much work for what the pay is. Then I know I don't like, I don't need to do it. I mean, okay, I must say I am lucky that I have the luxury because not luxury. I have had the, I've budgeted that I can do it. I'm not going to say luxury because that's like the wrong word. (laughs) No, it's, it's so, so true when you say that. And there are a few things that came to mind as I was listening to you speak is that number one, your body always knows your body always knows. And very often because we, it's so intuitive and we haven't got a concrete thing to justify why we feel that way. We ignore it. I'm sure so many times I've either been on the phone with a client or been in a meeting and I'm just like, I don't know why, but like my spirit is just not connected with you. There's just something Mm -hmm. that's not quite right. I can't justify it. So I'm like, Oh no, it makes sense financially. Let's do it. Our bodies always know. And then the second thing from what you were saying is that again, giving ourselves permission to create that white space that we don't have to say yes, just because an opportunity is there. Sometimes in doing that, we block opportunities that are totally aligned, but where yes. it's, scarce, it's a scarcity thing that, oh my God, you know, enough, another opportunity may not come along. So I've got to like jump at it. But it's about trusting that we are the secret source. We've kind of got to this point because we've got something of value to offer. And that's why we've got this offer on the table. It doesn't mean that we have to say yes to everything. Yeah, I think that's very true. And also like pursuing what you really want. So I'm right now taking some time, you know, between the like trying to promote this cookbook, but also deciding where do I want to go in the next couple of years with my work? You know, what do I want to do? And because I'm like, so I'm coming up with new book ideas or like new TV ideas. So I know now, right. Okay. If I write these book pictures, then I need to do X, Y, Z to get the ball rolling to get a book deal. I need to do this and this and this. So knowing where you want to go in a couple of years or a year or whatever, having that bigger picture really helps you like use that energy. I I have everybody, a lot of people say this when they become parents, especially mothers, you become more efficient with your time. So for a while, my like child has just started nursery. And previously, I was trying to do my work between nap time, evening, and like any kind of extra, like a little bit of help I'd get like eight hours a week. So I was cramming all my work into this small amount of time. And then all the things, all, all the things you don't really need to do, which aren't important to you or to your work, they just disappear, you know, or disappear. They just like, that's not what's going to drive you. So you really just like streamline and like focus on what's important. That's probably why you don't see so much of me on like Instagram or Twitter or whatever, you know, you, you only see like once a month, I've got my newsletter, I've got some, like some posts we go, go out or I am not, 
Like I see so many food writers, the content they put out. I'm like, oh my goodness, how do you pump out all these free recipes plus YouTube videos, plus you're writing a cookbook? How do they do it? You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's totally fine if that comes from like an aligned place, but for a lot of people, it doesn't. And that's why you look at people like Gary V and he's like, you know, work hard, hustle, love the, but he, he gets alignment from the hustle. Like he loves that. It's like, he thrives off that. And I think unfortunately, because we only see that approach, more, 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 pump out more. Um, we feel this pressure and it's like, if that doesn't feel aligned for you, don't do it. It's better to do one Instagram post that is really aligned than to feel like you're pumping out just like subpar content because you feel that you need to do it. And that's what I wanted to find out from you. Like having Mm. moved now from London to Sweden, did, did that move have any impact on the way that you kind of felt or approached your work? Because for me, moving to New York made a really big difference. It really gave me the space to kind of figure out what I wanted my business to look like. And actually, it's funny, I was talking to someone the other day. It's only in the, this year that I've kind of released the pressure of feeling like I have to constantly be running between the two. Right now, the majority of my life is here in New York. I've kind of left that pressure of like feeling like that FOMO, like I have to be in London. I've kind of let it go. How have you found that? Well, look, New York and Stockholm are not quite the same. So, <laughs> um, well, look, I must say, so Stockholm uh, is right for me now because of the family setup, like parental leave. My husband took nine, off, my, nine months off last year. Wow. You know, paid parental leave so I could write the cookbook and do all my other crazy ideas. Um, you know, you're really well supported. So I must say I am not like doing, having any FOMO for that part of my life. But, <laughs> and when I look at people on Instagram or like the foodies in London and I'm like, Oh, I'm not going to this event and stuff like that. I do feel that a little bit, you know, I feel like I'm missing out a bit, but at the same time, I, I'm in a different space in my life, you know, a different place. I'm, and there's so many things which I don't share on my social media, which I like to keep private that I really find so fulfilling. You know, my life is not on social media. I don't, I try not to find my fulfillment from social media. Um, Being in Stockholm means like I've had to, I'm trying to make my own new circle of friends, my own new circle of like freelancers to go meet up for lunch for. And I think it's really important that you have like a circle like that because it's difficult when you run your own business because it's very isolating. So that's taking time, you know, integrating into new culture, especially when you don't speak the language, even though everybody in Sweden speaks English really well. It's not easy, you know, so I'm working hard at that. That's taking a lot of energy, but it's happening slowly. And I, I get back to London like at least once a month. So that yeah. feels, it's, it's fine for me. Um, in the winter is difficult. You ever do a Swedish winter? It's like, I it's a struggle. <laughs> it crazy yeah but like I really like the approach the Swedes have you know like embracing whatever is happening like they embrace winter okay it's cold it's dark 
you know, there's no night. You just like the no such thing as bad clothes, uh, bad weather. It's just bad clothes. So you just wrap up, you go out, you see the kids out playing. It's like minus 10, you know, you make the most of it. Um, and it is what it is, you know? And I think this is something with age. I am like, I feel like I'm relaxing more into myself. Like, I don't feel like I have to prove myself so much. You know, I, I, when I was like, if you'd met me, like when I was living in Paris, I would have been like, yes, this is me. Da, 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 da. I'm, I've done this, 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 this. And like, I have to really sell that I'm successful. Now I'm like, okay, I do this. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. You know? Yeah. I don't have to talk as much, that's for sure. Although now I'm doing this podcast with you, you'd think the opposite. <laughs> you, you put that so beautifully and that's like such a great way to wrap it up. But how can people get their hands on the new book? When's it coming out? What can people expect? Where can they buy it? The whole thing. So The Little Swedish Kitchen is coming out on 26th of July in the UK, uh, Australia, New Zealand, India, and then later on it will be published in German and Swedish. But you can order it on, probably the easiest site is Amazon, super easy to order it on Amazon. Um, And The Swedish Cookbook, I mean, everybody thinks it's just about meatballs, but for me it was like my personal journey through like discovering Sweden, um, writing recipes that you can make at home, super accessible, easy ingredients to find at the supermarket and food that brings pleasure. That is enjoyment. That is, you know, for days when you feel like indulging for days, you feel like you want something lighter and refreshing. So it's a whole range of food. Oh, I'm so excited to get my hands on it. And can you just give your Instagram and um, website so people can connect with you there? So uh, my website is my name, which is Rachel with an E-L, Koo, K-H-O-O, not like Jimmy Choo. I always like, okay, Jimmy Choo's from Malaysia and my dad's from Malaysia, but a C and a K are very different Um, (laughs) because I get often like people change my name. I'm like, oh, I wish I was related to Jimmy Choo. I'd have so many Um, but I'm not, unfortunately. Um, and then my Instagram handle, cause I thought like when I set up Instagram, I wasn't so social media savvy. I thought, yeah, I'll be cool. And I'll call myself Rachel cooks, like using my surname K H O O K S. Um, cause I cook and yeah. So anyway, <laughs> you have to live with those. I'm sure everybody has that cheesy email, like, um, yeah. you know, from ages. I, I love chocolate or something like that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all do those shameless, shameless hotmail accounts. We do no shame in this game. Guys, all of the information of how to connect with Rachel, how to get your hands on the book are in the show notes. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you. So that's it for this week's episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. You can download more episodes of the show and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. If you enjoyed what you've heard, we would love a review or recommendation. It's the number one way for us to share these stories and insights with as many creative female entrepreneurs as possible. And don't forget, all of the information on how to join the TLE community is in the show notes or simply head to thelifestyleedit.com to sign up.